0: Welcome to the 387th episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. Stay tuned for my interview with Jennifer Murphy, author of the memoir, First Responder, a memoir of life, death, and love on New York City's front lines. And also stay tuned after the interview when Jennifer reads a short excerpt from her memoir, First Responder. Stay tuned for the interview. The Reading and Writing Podcast is brought to you by Libro FM. Libro.fm lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore. You can pick from more than 185,000 audiobooks, including bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers. You'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there, but you'll be part of a different story one that supports your local community and your local bookstore. If you're new to audiobooks, they're the perfect way to get more books into your busy life. You can listen during your commute, while doing chores, walking the dog, or just relaxing at home. All you need is a smartphone and the free Libro.fm app. If you already love audiobooks and don't know what to listen to next, check out recommendations and curated lists from people who know audiobooks best, your local bookseller. Here's your special offer from the Reading and Writing Podcast. Get two audiobooks for the price of one today with your first month of membership with the code RWPODCAST at checkout. This offer is only valid for new members in Canada and the U.S., check out Libro.fm today. Welcome back to the reading and writing podcast. My guest today is Jennifer Murphy, author of First Responder, a memoir of life, death, and love on New York City's front lines. Jennifer, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Sure. What prompted you to write your memoir about working as an EMT in New York City?
1: I think it was somewhat of a creative emergency. I've been studying fiction for years and completed my MFA at NYU and had finished a novel prior to COVID starting and was actually searching for representation. And then the pandemic started and New York City exploded with COVID and it seemed the more urgent story to tell was really what was happening on the street particularly as the sirens commenced, what was happening in New York City emergency medical services.
0: You just mentioned that you were in an MFA program. Did you say NYU?
1: Yeah, I went to NYU late in life. It was a fantasy degree. I had intended to get a degree in fiction writing years back and got interrupted by various events, one of which was 9-11. So I got it a few years ago at NYU.
0: And so what was that MFA experience like for you?
1: It was wonderful. It was wonderful. Again, I'm I'm 45 now. I think when I matriculated at NYU, I was 40 and Some of my kind of hero writers were there at the time. Nathan Englander was there, Darren Strauss, whose memoir Half a Life I Loved. David Lipsky was teaching in the department, Zadie Smith, and it was an all-star cast of writers. And I really, I felt like I had been writing novels for a while and they weren't selling and wasn't getting to where I wanted to be. And I thought, why not go back and learn more about craft?
0: So I can't imagine there are too many... MFA graduates from NYU working as an EMT in New York. What led you to working as an EMT?
1: That's surprising. I actually think a lot of, not a lot, but there were a handful of MFA fiction students that went on to do advanced degrees, not just in academia, but I think one woman is actually in medical school, if I'm not mistaken. So part of that path is usually cutting your teeth on the street as an EMT. I was inspired to do it after losing a firefighter friend in 9-11 named Captain Patrick Brown. And I always admired him. And it took me a long time to climb out of that disaster. And I'd always wondered if I could do it myself. And then I had a medical emergency when I was in graduate school and wound up as a patient on an ambulance and the EMTs who helped me. I thought they were saints. And again, I was like, I really wonder if a woman like me can do this kind of work.
0: And so what did you do when you had that thought and decided to pursue it?
1: I enrolled in an EMT school, I think not terribly long after I had my own medical emergency and was a patient. I I did some research on schools in New York and ended up enrolling. And even then, When they gave us our textbooks and coming out of NYU's MFA program where I'd been reading literature and then reading this textbook, which was just laced with photographs of injured people and medical terminology. I have a background in the humanities. I have no scientific background. So it was a big adjustment, but I loved my fellow students And I loved my instructors and I also really loved just learning about the body and things you can do in an emergency. What, what classifies an emergency versus just a kind of general sickness or malady.
0: And so do you remember the first time that you heard the term COVID-19?
1: That's a great question. The first time trying to remember, the first time I heard it, I'm a kind of daily reader of the news. So Mm -hmm. I feel like in the winter of last year, I started noticing there was news coming out of China, that there was a virus there. They wasn't, they weren't sure what it was. My next level of awareness happened when there was news coming out of Italy. And when when it hit Italy and when it had spread from China was the first time I started really tracking the seriousness of the virus. Because both in China and in Italy, they were really just fielding a, a mass casualty incident that, that appeared to be unlike anything the world had seen in quite some
0: time. Well, I know that you wrote this whole book and COVID is part of it. I'm just curious, can you explain to the listeners what it was like working as an EMT in New York City last March and April?
1: Yeah. So as you mentioned, the book starts with becoming an EMT and moves through a few years of being in the field just to set up the rules of the game and the kind of rules of the world of the street so that the reader can see some of the pre-existing problems that exist in our healthcare system and EMS. And when COVID hit, it didn't take much to bring our entire healthcare system into total collapse. And it's hard to capture with words, which is an ironic thing to say for a writer who just wrote a massive manuscript on <laughs> a fast deadline with COVID that starts about halfway through the book. But it, it was terrifying. It was really heartbreaking. It was confusing and chaotic. It was very sad. And a life-altering event, I think, for everyone on the street. And by that, not just EMTs and paramedics, but of course, police officers, our first responders as our firefighters, and then the nurses and doctors in in the hospitals as well.
0: So how did you and your co-workers manage the stress and the experience of one call after another with people dealing with COVID symptoms?
1: No not well. Uh, EMS and the first responder world is a world that kind of marches out of step with the rest of the world. It's a world set apart from other people. And it's in that sense uh, a bit lagging in terms of mental health and how to manage stress. The 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 tools of the street to manage stress continue to be the tools that that were used in the 1950s. Like picking up extra shifts, talking to your peers about it, drinking a lot. These are the tools that are still being used today. There are advances. I have for a long time due to various traumatic events in my life, been a recipient of EMDR therapy, which is a kind of therapy that focuses on trauma. They use it a lot for veterans who have PTS and So I've been in EMDR therapy for years, and it's really changed and and helped my life. So I continue to do that. I'm also a big practitioner of meditation, and I'm a former athlete, a volleyball player. So I've always found refuge in working out as a way to calm down. But the truth of the matter is the event is ongoing. And we're not out of it quite yet. And while things are certainly more hopeful now than they were during the nightmare of last year, a lot of the patients are still very sick and people are very burned out, myself included. Sure. Everybody is very burned out, very tired and very disappointed in people. And it's a difficult time.
0: Yeah. Yep. Did you ever get sick yourself?
1: I did. I got sick right away like all EMS workers. I think a quarter or more of the workforce on the ambulances got hit pretty fast and hard last spring. So I had one of my first few tours when COVID really advanced here and we were all going on tons of calls. We had a very sick COVID patient who my guess is he did not survive. And my partner was not feeling well that night. And we had the ambulances sealed in half so that the person in the back was sealed in with the patient and the person in the front, the drive the driving that night was sealed into the front. And in that night, both the patient and my partner ended up being very sick with COVID. And I we didn't know that yet. But the, the patient we did, my partner, I didn't. He got sick the next day. Within 24 hours, I also got sick and had all of the symptoms really except for the fever. And yet I tested negative for the, the virus. And when I finally managed to find a clinic that would test me at that time, the tests were pretty bad, The high right. error rate. And nobody was testing EMS workers. They just presumed that we were positive and asymptomatic. And if we got sick, we got pulled off the truck.
0: So over the time that you worked as an EMT, not just with COVID, are there one or two particular patients or calls that you still remember?
1: Oh, yes, of course. Of course. There are calls I had two weeks ago that I still remember. I think that Strange thing about EMS is it's very personal. It depends on what kind of background you have that makes you remember certain calls more than others. For everyone, any call involving a child will bring you to your knees. Any pediatric call where a child is neglected or injured or suffering or dying, that's often a last call for first responders, meaning they'll retire at times after those kinds of jobs. For me, that it's the sadder calls that stay with me. It's not the craziest calls or the most kind of medical trauma I've seen. It's the calls where I doubt myself or I doubt my decisions. And unfortunately, COVID came with a lot of those calls because we were really trying to help patients, many of whom had been discharged from hospitals because the hospitals were overflowing. And so patients would call 911 and that there was either not a great place where we could take them or we could take them there, but we knew they would just be sent home or there were EMTs waiting for hours to just triage patients at hospitals. And so in that, in that landscape, which was really the landscape, I think nationwide, Southern California just went through their version of the New York Spring. And they had, I think, 17 hours outside of hospitals and were rationing oxygen. And that's a very distressing scenario for a first responder to, to not be able to administer oxygen to someone who can't breathe well or to have to, to have someone who needs immediate emergency care and have to wait for hours in a hospital line. And then you're worrying if your patient will survive.
0: Well, to, to shift gears for for a moment, you have talked earlier about writing novels and getting your MFA in fiction writing. Was it a big switch for you to then take your experience writing and shift to, to writing memoir?
1: Yeah, it was. It was a bit scary um, because I think fiction for me, first of all, fictions it's just what I love to read. I, I think poetry, fiction, I read a lot of war literature, but I've never been especially drawn to memoir, ironically. And there are exceptions to the rule, of course, but I'm not a memoirist. I didn't study memoir. And I think what was, again, the biggest surprise for me was that I found that the stories I wanted to tell and the voices I wanted to capture from the street were so, the real story, unedited, raw, unfiltered were so much more compelling to me than trying to tell the story through fiction. And I had a moment where I thought, I thought that I was writing fiction and that fiction freed me up to tell the truth in a more artistic way, because you have a bit of a mask when you are writing fiction and you can change details. And I think in a way, kind of Share difficult things and also protect people that may be harmed if you told the story straight. But there was something quite relieving.
0: For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you call clickgranger.com or just stop by Granger for the ones who get it done
1: in just telling my friend Michael Daly who writes at the Daily Beast a publication here in New York and a good friend of mine at one point he when I was very stressed out about trying to tell the stories because they're very dark and painful and they're also hilarious and kind of raunchy and working class but they're dark and and I remember him saying do you have a story to tell and I said yes and he said then just tell the truth and so there was something kind of freeing about that process of just I don't have to make anything up I just tell the truth
0: well looking beyond this memoir do you are you have you gone back to fiction and do you Hope to continue writing novels and have one published?
1: I wish I could answer that question. I'm lost as a writer. I, I must say, I think <laughs> right now 2020, I think there's still a big echo effect of now that we're not in the kind of adrenaline part of the disaster, there's a sort of coming down and sure. re-experiencing it emotionally in the sense where I'm rediscovering just normal life again. And that I had a very hard time reading most of 2020. I could I just couldn't take in. Any a lot of information. And the same thing for writing. I really wrote for my life. And now that kind of pressure is off, I'm finding a lot of comfort in writing shorter pieces. So just writing essays, dabbling. I, a couple of writer friends have suggested to me that I try to return to fiction just for my soul. And for right now, the thing that feels best is just to write short essays. Any, any practice of writing makes me feel like I'm living the life I'm supposed to be living. So it all counts, and I think it's all valuable. I don't know that I could have written the memoir if I hadn't written a novel first or several. So.
0: Sure. so what do you think most people don't understand about the job of an EMT?
1: Oh, it's very similar to the job of a writer. I think in in the sense that there's a big gap between what people think it is and what the job actually entails. Like I I think most people think that EMTs and and paramedics are either just driving old sick people around. People call us ambulance drivers a lot, not really knowing that's a derogatory and reductive term for us, that everybody on the truck is typically in most cities and states, is a a fully trained rescuer. But I think people don't know, as they say about war, how boring it is at times, how distressing it is emotionally at times, how sad it is. I think there's not a lot of awareness about how violent it is. In New York City, we had an EMT. We're paramedic. I can't remember her level of training. I think she was actually a paramedic, but a fire department rescuer who a patient bit in the face last week. And I had no idea when I went into it, how violent it was, how violent patients can be when they're on drugs or having a mental health crisis. So how much you get verbally and physically assaulted. I had no idea how little life saving went on in the field. And we have the calls that you, the stuff of 911 reality shows and TV dramas, we have those calls for sure. But the amount of non emergencies we respond to is breathtaking. Which I didn't know, because even in EMT school, they prepare you for a lot of medical to see and to see and treat and care for a lot of patients in medical trauma, severe medical emergencies is what you're trained for. And then you kind of get on the system and you're like, this patient is just drunk and sad. Or this (laughs) this patient's problem is that they're, they're in a mental health crisis. We have New York city has, is in a mental health crisis disaster and has been for years. And that's a significant volume of 911 calls and, EMTs, to be honest, are not sufficiently trained in those calls. We receive a few hours in class and a few hours in continuing medical education, but it's not a it's not something you walk through and yet it's like a significant portion of the 911 call volume here.
0: Sure. When you s- sat down to write your memoir, were there other memoirs that you had in mind or those or or ones that you had read over the years that you had in mind?
1: There were for different things like for instance, I loved I love dispatches, the kind of the Michael her Vietnam uh, book uh, so that that memoir meant a lot to me in terms of. It's not a memoir. It's really kind of stories from the field, dispatches literally as the title states. But that book means a lot to me in terms of tone, of just expressing to the reader the urgency of the world. And I loved also David Halberstam's Firehouse, which it's my kind of go-to book about September 11th, where he went to a firehouse in New York City. And it's really the voices of the firemen. All men in the house that he covered. And I think also it's not a memoir, but House of God is like the big medical book that kind of all doctors read before they get into the field. That's a, a very wild, vulgar kind of ride through the world of medicine. I also love, of course, everything Oliver Sacks wrote. And so there, I had, there's an, a, also a beautiful nonfiction book called How We Die. That it goes through each kind of medical emergency from the perspective of a doctor. So there were, I always write with a stack of books on my desk.
0: <laughs> Great. Where can people find you online if they want to learn more about you and your memoir?
1: Yeah. So I'm on, my website is gingerlid.com. I have red hair, so half of my world calls me Ginger and Lid, of course, for heads. So gingerlid.com is my website. My social media handles on Instagram and uh, Twitter correspond to that. Ginger lived the first with a one um, for the first. And I have a TED Talk with my best friend, Felice Bell, called How We Became Sisters. So I'm visible there.
0: Great. Again, we've been speaking with Jennifer Murphy, author of First Responder, a memoir of life, death, and love on New York City's front lines. The book is on sale now, so go buy a copy. And Jennifer, thanks for doing this interview.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: Now stay tuned as Jennifer Murphy reads from her memoir, First Responder, a memoir of life, death, and love on New York City's front lines.
1: The second you put on a uniform, people forget you're a human being. They call you a hero, endow you with superhuman qualities you may or may not possess. Bravery, strength, resilience. I'm not by nature a courageous woman. Bravery is a performance. It's something I had to practice to excel at on the street, where the stakes were unbelievably high. Before I could demonstrate valiance in the face of human catastrophe, I had to be hauled through the hellscape of failure. Of the four F's that comprise the body's survival responses to stress, Flight, flight, freeze, and yes, fornicate. Freezing was my least favorite to experience on scene. Yet there I stood one green summer afternoon in Brooklyn during the summer of 2018, a six-foot-one red-headed emergency medical technician, concretized at the sight of a bleeding food delivery biker lying supine in the sunlit street, having just been struck by a car. Holy shit, I thought, this is an emergency. Now, I don't know about you, but when I see someone wearing an EMT uniform, I'm pretty sure they're supposed to help out in this sort of situation. But that didn't mean I could. I was glaciated by fear. I'd been an EMT at Park Sloan Volunteer Ambulance Corps for a few months, and this was my first serious trauma job. I understood now why they called war the theater. I was an actor frozen on stage, unable to remember my lines. Humiliated by my inability to move. I stood in the street clutching a stretcher whose brakes I couldn't get to work, sweating through my uniform before an audience of bystanders who'd gathered to watch this gruesome matinee, shocked to see how many people had taken out their phones to record videos of a stranger's pain. Not just the stranger's pain, mine. They were recording me too. I wanted to run screaming off stage. If there were an eject button, I would have hit it. There was so much happening all at once, everyone in action but me, drowning in a sea of surreally slow time. There were voices all around me, but I couldn't tell where they were coming from. I heard only a high pitch ringing in my ears. It wasn't just the guy laid out in the street with blood guttering from his forehead, darkening his face and spilling into his eyes, his legs twisted to the side as if he were running. It was the swarm of firefighters encircling him, then looking at me, waiting, expecting me to do something. Act. Was this really happening? It was too real. Unreal. Another ambulance was parked up the block. Bystanders had flagged it down, but the EMTs couldn't take the biker because they already had a patient stretchered inside their truck. It was up to me. Us. Where was he? My partner. There. Ship wasn't hard to spot on this affluent, mostly white block of brownstoned park slope. A burly black rescuer and career EMT, 20 years my junior. He stood a few inches taller than me. He worked with a fleet of turnout-geared firefighters to collar, backboard, stretcher, lift, and load the patient into the ambulance. The audience scattered like thrown dice. Their show was over. For us, it had just begun. On the back of the bus, as we call ambulances in New York City, my hands shook terribly. I could barely grip my hot pink stethoscope. The truck stank of blood and sweat and turned my stomach to liquid. My mouth went dry and tasted of chalk. "'Ship hovered over the stretcher, assessed the biker for trauma, and cut off his pants, groping his legs, asking him questions about the severity of his pain. "'I tried to ask the patient questions, too, but he spoke little English. "'He had no identification, no insurance, no problem. "'As one of the city's volunteer ambulance companies, we transported patients regardless of their inability to pay.'" Words uttered by the critically injured and sick as well as those approaching death were always humbling and sacred to witness. Agonized men often cried out for their mothers. Others mumbled spiritual pleas to angels near and far. Undocumented workers frequently asked for their bosses. "'Call my boss,' the patient kept saying. "'Where's my bike? I need my bike.'" A fire department lieutenant came up to our truck and assured the guy he would keep the bike at his firehouse. "'We've got your bike, buddy. You can come get it once you're out of the hospital.'" Where's my bike? The patient asked. Concussed people repeat themselves. Getting them to understand what happened is like trying to eat soup with a fork. Ship radioed a note to the nearest trauma-receiving hospital, letting them know we were three minutes out and what we were bringing their way. Then he jumped off the truck, shut the back doors, hopped in the front, and blared down the tree-lined blocks to the nearest ER. There, minutes later, a chaos of nurses stood outside the trauma room when we rolled in. Ship bounded forward and gave them a triage report. Quickly, the hospital staff transferred the patient off our stretcher and onto a bed, cut off his shirt, hooked him up to a vitals device, and began doing whatever it was doctors and nurses did. We stumbled out of the trauma room. In the hallway, Ship handed me a bouquet of disinfectant wipes to decontaminate the stretcher. Then he looked at me and said, We need to talk. That can never happen again. He talked to me for a long time about all the mistakes I'd made on scene. I stood in sorrow and listened. Suddenly I worried I didn't have what it takes to save lives, that deciding to become an EMT was another one of my harebrained ideas. Maybe I wasn't built for this. Maybe I should give up, quit. I prayed the rest of our tour would be quiet and dreaded the possibility of another job. I wanted only to go home and sob and tell Park Slope I was done. That would be all thanks. Sorry, job's not for me. I wasn't designed for this. I thought I was, but I was wrong. Outside in the hospital ambulance bay, we climbed back on the truck and cleaned up. For an hour, we sat on the ambulance in silence, and then, to my horror, we got another job. Injury major, this time in Prospect Park. My entire body felt like a squash banana. This would be different, I told myself as ship airhorned his way to the park. It had to be different. That could never happen again. We arrived in the park where the trees dropped the temperature, the air was cool, and smelled sweetly of grass. Before Ship fully parked the ambulance, I jumped out the passenger door and ran to a moaning biker who'd been pitched into the lacerating bramble. We were first on scene, mercifully alone. I asked the patient what happened, what hurt, if he'd lost consciousness or remembered the accident. He said he'd crashed into something and flew over his handlebars, landing on his side. His neck hurt. Ship handed me a collar. I adjusted it to the biker's size and then clasped it around his neck. We lifted him onto a stretcher and loaded him into the ambulance as a fire engine pulled up. A lieutenant slid off the rig and came up to our bus. We're good, I said. You guys can go. Inside the ambulance, I cut off the patient's pants and put a cold pack on his swollen knee. Soon, we were back in the ER, transferring our patient to nurses and decontaminating the bloody stretcher. This time, as I cleaned it down with lemony disinfectant wipes, I thrummed with amazement at what had just transpired. I couldn't stop smiling. I'd never experienced this version of myself before. I'd never transformed so quickly in a matter of hours from a bystander paralyzed by fear into a useful participant in an emergency, into someone who could do something, who could help. The lost dog of my confidence rushed back to me and gave birth to a new confidence that hadn't existed before. The emergency shredded the unhelpful story I'd told myself for some time, that I was too fragile and sensitive to be a rescuer, and I had no business on the street, replacing it with an image of myself as a calm, capable woman trained to stop bleeding and stabilize the spine. My writer's mind went to a line by Dennis Johnson, one of my favorite authors, I make the road, I draw the map, nothing just happens to me, I'm the one happening. That was it exactly, I was happening. I was a first responder. It was an incredible feeling. I wanted it to last forever.
0: Sick of being upsold at gyms?